This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this conference. Thank you for these young people, and thank you for the opportunity you've given us in this time to study these great themes and to open your word. Please, Lord, help us to reflect your image. Help us to be your people, not by our own strength or for our own selfish purposes, but, Lord, for your glory alone and by your strength alone. May we represent you before men and angels. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice that I, I, I don't have any hesitation about uh, sharing passages or citations from the spirit of prophecy. Um, and I, I have found, just as a personal testimony, her writings to be so incredibly powerful, so well-written, so edifying, so spiritually deep, and just, you know, veggie meat in due season. It is good, good stuff, right? Now, I used to not always, I didn't always think that along the same lines when it came to the spirit of prophecy. Uh, there were many times that uh, when I was younger and stuff, I would just want to kind of cut to the chase and really find those you know, really salient uh, slicing passages that talked about a particular thing. And all the talk about, you know, love and lambs and children and birds and sunshine and flowers, blech. You know, that's the flu. That's just all written there to be poetic. Let's get to the good stuff, right? Now, uh, recently in, in the churches that I pastor, we, we went through prayer meeting and uh, we went through the desire of ages, just word for word, chapter by chapter, for our prayer meeting time. And a thought struck me upside the head, right in the middle of one of those birds and flowers and floofy passages that kind of floored me, and it, it resonated with some other things that I was studying at the same time, and I want to share that with you now. It's here, uh, quoted it out here, just the very opening, some of the very opening sentences here of The Desire of Ages, you'll find it on page 20 and 21 of that great, uh, that great uh, classic volume on the life of Christ. She writes, there is nothing save, and of course that means except, the selfish heart of man that lives unto what? Itself. Now think about that. Nothing in all of God's created universe exists for its own purposes. Then she starts to list off some of those selfless things, like the birds. Here we go. No bird that cleaves the air, no animal that moves upon the ground, but ministers to some other life. There is no leaf of the forest or lowly blade of grass, but has its ministry. Every tree and shrub and leaf pours forth that element of life, without which neither man nor animal could live, and man and animal in turn minister to the life of the tree and shrub and leaf. And of course we know this is true. The plants take in carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. We take in oxygen and give off carbon dioxide. It's a little symbiotic relationship that the Lord has established. Now, she continues... The flowers breathe fragrance and unfold their beauty and blessing to the world. The sun shed its light to gladden a thousand worlds. The ocean, itself the source of all our springs and fountains, receives the streams from every land, but takes to give. Of course, she's talking now about the water cycle. You have the great seas, the ocean, the salt water, but they're fed by these streams and rivers and all these different bodies of water that pour into them, and, but then they give off the water and it goes back up in the cloud and it gives back to the streams. It's pour into the ocean and it goes back up in the clouds. So over and over and over, she's talking about a cycle or a circuit as she'll later refer to it. Okay, now, the mists, oh, I'm sorry, the ocean itself, the source of all of our springs and fountains, receives the streams from every land, but takes to give. I want that to stick in your head takes for what purpose? To give. Takes to give. The mists ascending from its bosoms fall in showers to water the earth that it may bring forth and bud. Now, the angels of glory. Now this goes back to our great controversy before men and angels theme. The angels of glory find their joy in what activity? Giving. Not flying. <laughs> Not playing on a harp whatever images we might have, but they, they're, the happiest they get is when they get to give. Find their joy in giving. <clears throat> giving love in tireless watch care to souls that are fallen and unholy. Boy, they love ministering to us. Heavenly beings woo the hearts of men. They bring to this dark world light from the courts alone uh, above, 
by gentle and patient ministry, they move upon the human spirit to bring the lost into a fellowship with Christ, which is even closer than they themselves can know. Think about this. They love to give away something that they can't even take in return. You know, I, 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 don't know you, I don't even understand how to even put that in human terms, but they're giving away stuff that they could never even, they can't even properly appreciate it themselves, but they see the joy that it brings both to the Father and to the recipient, and they just love to give it. But they have no idea what it's like to have been a fallen sinner and to be redeemed but they see the joy that it brings and they want to bring that hope and that joy to others. But turning from all lesser representations, which of course the flowers and the trees and the shrubs and even the angels, the other thing that angels have in common, flowers, trees and shrubs, is they're all created things, yes? They're le- but all of them represent the character of God to a certain extent. In the same way, she threads this together by saying all of these things take to give. Now, but turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. And of course, Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. Looking unto Jesus, now you've got to underline, highlight, star, whatever it is you do. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to do what? To give. Now think about that. You think of glory as like shiny, or power, glory. Or the glory is reputation and fame. uh, He says the glory of God is in giving. Think about that. Every picture that we have of God, most of our pictures, especially out in the world, is God's glory, is his power, is his strength, it is might, it is, it is majesty, it is all these things, it is it's due him, he's, oh, he has power, he can control, he's sovereign. Which, of course, he's powerful and can control and sovereign. I'm not taking anything away from that, those aspects of the Lord, but the glory of God is found in his character, and his character gives. I do nothing of myself, said Christ, The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not mine own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. Now watch this now. This is kind of what knocked me on the head. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. The entire law of life is summed up in I seek not mine own glory but the glory of him that sent me. All things Christ received from God, but he took, for what purpose? To give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's love flows out to all, and through the Son it returns. In praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus through Christ... The circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great, capital G, giver, the law of life. Okay? She refers to this principle of taking to give as the circuit of beneficence. Now, beneficence, is, odds are, isn't a term that we use these days so much, but uh, does it, people speak Spanish here, some, yeah? Okay? Something that's good? Bueno? Yeah? (laughs) Si? (laughs) Por favor. (laughs) It's good. It's beneficial. Right? It's good for others. It's good for you. And it's the glory of God to be beneficent, to give good things. Think about that. Jesus would talk about it. You know, an earthly father would, of course, give everything he could to his son. He wouldn't give him a snake or a stone. How much more than your heavenly Father wants to give? It's the glory of our God to give, the circuit of beneficence. Apparently the entire universe, from plants and flowers and shrubs and trees, all the way up through the angel host, even to the Godhead, and every member thereof, exist for this purpose. They all operate on this one principle. And you would think, oh, the principle is love. Well, yes, but... She uses love, I think, one time in those paragraphs, but she uses give over and over and over and over and over. 
they operate on this circuit of beneficence that everyone receives and then you give to the next one. Receive and give to the next one. Now, this is, I believe, the true essence of love. Love, I believe, is simply the principle of giving of yourself for others. And I want to try to demonstrate that very quickly here biblically for you. Um, uh, let's go to first, uh, there's just so many of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Of course, in 1 John, I just have a blank there because there's several passages and I forgot to fill it in, but over and over in 1 John, um, at least more than once, I believe twice, the, the, the scripture definitively says God is what? Love. God is love. But what does that mean? Too often, I believe, in our society today, we have love as kind of a, as a, a flight of fancy or a crush or a fondness for someone, or he's just really interested for a time. No, 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 no. This is not what we're talking about. There's a principle beyond emotion, a divine truism that is love. And let's see what it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, of course, the love chapter. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard these words mentioned. But it's interesting that it's, it's sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14. But I, of course, that's where 13 would be. But, but the topics of 12 and 14 are spiritual gifts, building up the body of Christ. And here Paul is saying, however, if I speak the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am nothing, right? And then he explains what love is. Love uh, is, starting with chapter 13, uh, verse, let's see here. For love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Now tell me, what is envy? Uh, desire for something is not your own. Jealousy, wanting somebody else's, you know, wanting what they have for yourself. Doesn't do that. Love does not parade what? Itself. Parade is to be boastful and you know, show off and strut your stuff. It doesn't do that. Is not puffed up. What does puffed up mean? It's not talking about physically like a puffer fish. Right? It's talking about is it big-headed, right? Ego, pride. Doesn't have that. Love doesn't have that. And notice that all these things go back to selfish. Self, self, self. It's none of that. Now notice this does not behave rudely, does not seek, what? Its own. So if it does not seek its own, it must then seek for others. Right? It doesn't parade itself. It doesn't boast for itself. It's not proud of itself. It doesn't envy for itself. It doesn't seek its own. Love is a principle of putting others first. Of course, we see this in John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he'd what? Gave. And somebody's probably walked you through these texts before, but you see this equivalence between love and give repeatedly in the scriptures. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 in verse 20 talks about, uh, it talks about this equivalence once again. Uh, just go there quickly. Just want to demonstrate from scripture that this is true. Chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul explains, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And he defines the Son of God as he who loved me and what? Gave himself for me. He said, that's who Jesus is, the one who loved me, not just in words, but in action. He demonstrated that love. He didn't just say it, but he did it, loved me, and gave himself for me. By the way, Ephesians chapter 5, apparently this love is supposed to be the model of the love in the home. Husbands, love your wives, how? Even as Christ loved the church, and how did he love the church? Gave himself for her. Apparently the love of Christ should be manifested in the love that we have for each other, in the home and in the church and in our relations of all people, that we should love and give. You know, I'll just pause right here for a second and jump a little bit ahead, but I think that we live in too much of a slacktivist. Have you heard that term, slacktivist? Like people who really want to get involved with something so they'll like a post on Facebook. Like, oh, that's terrible. Like. <laughs> right? 
or they'll have all these papers, oh, I'm all for this, and I'm all for that, and they'll talk a big talk, but don't actually do anything. They're not an activist, they're a slacktivist, right? They're not doing anything. Christ is more than a profession of love, and Christianity is, more of a, is, is not just a profession, it's a demonstration, it's a manifest in the life, right? And this is what he says, he says, Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her. John chapter 15 and verse 13. To what extent should this love continue? How far should it go? Well, let's start with verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. And how did Christ love us? He gave himself for us. Then he goes on, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You surrendering yourself for the benefit of others. Self-sacrificing love is the only true love. Everything else is just stolen the name. Right? Now, this is the love of God. Now, 1 John chapter 4, now this is one of those scripture songs. 1 John, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, right? Beloved, let us do what? Why? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God, knoweth God, right? Think about it. If you truly are God, now remember John chapter 8, Jesus had this, the desires of your father you want to do, now, they claim to be God's children and the descendants of Abraham, but he said, Abraham never once wanted to kill me, but all you do is want to hunt me down and kill me. Ge genetically, you might be his, but spiritually, you're from another father because it's manifest in your life. And he says, now, if you truly are of God, then you will love in the same way that God loves. It is not just in word, but it's in deed. He'll actually manifest it in your life, in your behavior, in your actions. Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul returns to this theme. Verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, like if you're in Christ, if you've had comfort of his love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, let nothing be done through what? Selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This principle of self-sacrificing love for the benefit of others. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to go through these texts rather quickly because we're building a foundation now. Matthew chapter 16. Verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus just said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him... What's the first step in following Christ? Let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross. And of course, the cross is a representation of the love of God when he laid down his life for us, right? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mm. Now, Aside from the great creator-creation divide, which of course is infinite. This is huge. I'm not putting anything down about that. Christ is the creator and Satan and everyone else is a creation. Is that clear? Okay. Now, aside from uh, having said that, that caveat being understood, that's a given that there's that great gap between his creation and the creator himself. The central difference Aside from that, the central difference between Christ and Satan is that Satan lives for himself and Christ lives for others. Okay? This four-letter word is self. Sin is selfishness. Now, again, Isaiah chapter 14. You recall this from our very first session Isaiah chapter 14, in fact, you probably recall it from most of your lives hearing this passage, but look again, 
Lucifer's eye problem. Verse 12, how you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought, what? Down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. This is the character of Satan. I, I, I will take, I will exalt, I will lift, I will send, I will rise above, I will be like the Most High. And as a result of that I, 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 I desire, you shall be brought down. Now that's Satan's trajectory, trying to build himself up, and the result is going down. Now let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 again. And look at the stark contrast between the mindset of Lucifer and the mindset of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now he's going to define what that mind was, what that character was like. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Right? It's not like to be equal with God is something he had to steal and sneak up and try to get for his own. He already had it inherently. He was God. Yes? Or, of course, Satan wanted to be like God. I'm going to get it. I'm going to grasp. I'm going to sin. He, Christ is like, no, I know who I am. I can let go. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now think about this. If Christ were to step down even to the level that Lucifer was at in his perfection, it would be a step down for Jesus Christ, right? But then he stepped down to humanity, which of course we were made a little lower than the angels. But it wasn't just humanity in the Garden of Eden in his original splendor and glory. It was humanity after 4,000 years of sin. So that should have been the great condescension. But even then, he wasn't the highest of those. He was the lowest of those. He was born in a manger. People have been talking about it all last month. And as ignominious as that alone is, you know, poverty and humility... Then, all the weight of sin was dumped upon him. Him who knew no sin became sin for us. And he died. But not just a regular death, even the death of the cross. You have stepped down and down and down and down and down and down and down that he was willing to go. And notice, notice, made him. He did it. He chose. He did. But notice the result. Verse 9, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So you notice the trajectory of Christ? We are willing to go down and down and down and down and down. And as a result, he'll be lifted up. But in Satan's desires to go up and up and up and up and up and up and up, the result is that he will fall down. Thus Christ could say these weird things like, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He who desires to be great will be a servant. Right? It's completely upside down from our human perspective. Ours is like, if you want to go up, you've got to climb. <laughs> Christ is like, if you want to go up, you've got to go down and serve. Everything is backwards. No wonder God didn't use, like, the kingdom of heaven is like, you know, Rome. That's a kingdom like we think of it, but it has nothing to do with the principles of God's kingdom. So we'd say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a seed, or a sheep, you know, or a farmer in a field. What is that? It's like, God, oh, but these are where the great principles are contained. Right? So love is this giving of yourself for others. In Desire of Ages, chapter, uh, page 21, still continuing the same passage we were looking at before, in heaven itself, this law, this circuit of beneficence, was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Now, please, this is not an excuse for sin. Let's be clear about this. It's not an excuse for sin. It's just the fact of sin. Sin originated in self-seeking. 
Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. He sought to gain control of heavenly beings, to draw them away from their creator, and to win their homage to whom? Himself. Sought to win their homage to himself. The Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 564. Selfishness is contrary to the spirit of Christianity. It is altogether, what's that word? Satanic in its nature and development. Now, if I were to use that term, satanic, I'm guessing you would think of like some dark imagery and some really awful pictures and graphic images. And I don't even want to talk about it anymore. No, no, I don't like it. But she uses this term satanic to talk about selfish. No, selfish. Oh, just walking out for number one. You do for you. That's satanic? Yes. That's at the very heart of the matter. Every sin we typically think of is a result of some form of selfishness, wanting for me, taking care of me instead of me getting off of me and thinking about you. Every species of sin has its root in this one cause, self. Selfishness. Sin is a four-letter word. In fact, she would go on to say in 1888 Materials, page 1781, all sin is what? Selfishness. All sin is selfishness. See, it sounded radical when I say it. Mrs. White says it like, oh, I guess. (laughs) But it's true. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was a manifestation of selfishness. He sought to grasp power to exalt self. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. By the way, was sin logical? Was it like, no, I can see why he would have shot? No. It doesn't make sense. Please, uh, we've talked about this earlier, please put away this notion of trying to explain it. Because it doesn't make sense. This is why he refers to it as a species of insanity got to be out of your mind. But he did. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. And the temptation that led Adam to sin was Satan's declaration that it was possible for man to attain to something more than he already enjoyed. Possible for him to be as God himself. He spread his crazy down here. The sowing of seeds of selfishness in the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. That seed of selfishness. We talk about a proclivity or propensity toward evil. All we're talking about is wanting for me whatever I want. She goes on to say, God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against this terrible, deceptive power. By the way, can, can self-deceive? Is it possible that you're doing something from a purely selfish motive, but you can ascribe to it more noble motive? to come? Oh, no, no, I'm doing this, for the, but in reality, you just want for you. Right? And you can even deceive yourself. It makes me always worried when people say, like, oh, don't worry, God knows my heart. That's the most worrisome thing. (laughs) That's the most terrifying thought of the whole thing. It's like, don't worry, God can see right through me. (laughs) No, no, slow down. You know? But we're deceived. It's like, no, my heart is pure. I know that sometimes I do naughty things, but my heart is clean. Friends, all that comes out is what's within. Right? And whatever sin, whatever habit, hang-up thing, is all a manifestation of selfishness, seeking for self. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against this terrible, deceptive power. Now notice this. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil. Now before we read the... 
The design of the gospel, the purpose, the aim, the objective of Christ's life, ministry, and death on our behalf was to confront this evil. Remember, it makes us think of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, that this is for this purpose the Son of Man was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. And what's the core work of the devil? Self-seeking. Jesus came to confront that. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil by means of what? Remedial missionary work. And to destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of, there's that word, benevolence, beneficence, which is doing good for others. Apparently the power of the gospel, when it goes out of the realm of theory and into practice, will be manifested in doing good for others. You will love others even as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The power of the gospel is to make us Christ-like in that regard. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. You know, when we talk about the signs of the end, oftentimes, at least in my mind, I think of earthquakes and disease and violence and all those kind of things, which are true, those are absolutely true. But Paul is very explicit here about one of these times, one of these signs of the times. And in chapter 3 and verse 1 we read, But know this, which by the way, if the Bible ever says know this, what should we do? (laughs) Know it. (laughs) Okay, just making sure we're clear on that. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And again, I'm thinking, oh, financial collapse and natural disaster, right? Verse 2. For men will be lovers of, what's the very first thing on the list? Themselves. And out of that comes this whole list of vices, right? Lovers of themselves, boasters, proud. Notice it's basically undoing his love does not do this, does not do this, does not do this. But in the end days, Jesus had said the love of many will wax cold. Paul puts it like this. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, which slanders, of course, goes back to that whole trading and trafficking, talking bad about people behind their back, they gossips, this kind of thing. Without self-control, they just, they, the self just runs them. Whatever they see. Brutal, despisers of good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then it says in verse 5, because by the way, if it said that about the world, we'd be like, "Mm -mm 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 -mm, that is true, that's how the world is. But should we be surprised when the world is, you know, well, worldly? Of course. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, per se. Look at verse 5. Having a form of what? Godliness but denying its what? Power. It has a form, it might have a profession, but the power of the gospel is not evident in the life because they're still lovers of themselves. Lovers of money and boasters and proud and blasphemers and all the way down the list. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Now, I praise the Lord that Though in the last days perilous times will come, and apparently even in the church there will be seen, some might have the profession of the faith in a form of godliness, but deny the power of thereof. It's not completely left alone, and we're just all headed for the edge of a cliff, and that's it. Okay? Look back at our four steps in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. After verses 7 through 9 describe the initial casting out of Satan, And then in verse 10, we have the 
second casting out of Satan, out of the sympathies of the heavenly beings when they see the character of Christ revealed at the cross and the character of Satan proportionally revealed in the same act. We find in verse 11, and they, that is the accused, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and notice this, and they did not love what? Their lives. To what point? To the death. Greater love has no one than this, than he will lay down his life for his friends. So apparently in the last days, there will be lovers of themselves, yet there will also be manifested people who will love others so much they will lay down their life to represent the character of the great giver, the great God of love, and the Savior that they love, Jesus Christ. Which brings me to this statement. It's found in Acts of the Apostles, page 551. Wouldn't you, I mean, wouldn't, I mean of course, we're not supposed to have <laughs> checklists, and that's absolutely a form of legalism. I don't want to say that, but wouldn't it be nice to know yeah, what the complete, what, what's the objective, what it looks like to have a completed Christian character? Yeah. Well, it's written down for us, so we should read it. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. How simple is that? The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs forth constantly from within. It just comes out of you to help others. It is the atmosphere of this love surrounding the soul of the believer that makes him a savor of life unto life and enables God to bless his work. Supreme love for God and unselfish love for one another. This is the best gift that our Heavenly Father can bestow. This love is not an impulse. Right? So if it happens just because you get stirred in a moment or a tear-jerky kind of thing, it's like, no, 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 it's not just a reaction. It's an ongoing principle deeper than an emotional high or low. It's not an impulse, but a divine principle. Going back to that original circuit of beneficence, it's that divine principle. A permanent power. The unconsecrated heart cannot originate or produce it. Only in the heart where Jesus reigns is it found. We love him because he first loved us. In the heart renewed by divine grace, love is the ruling principle of action. The transformation of character that Christ wants to see in his people is manifest in a love that actually does for others. That gets outside of itself. Thinks about the goodness of others. And, and I want to bring up this... I want to close with this illustration. In fact, I'm going to have a friend of mine come up and, and talk to you for just a minute at the close of this presentation. But I, I really like this illustration, and I'll share it with you now. If you've heard it, don't give away the punchline. And if you haven't, well, here we are. Um, a, a painter was commissioned to illustrate heaven and hell. Okay? The story is told of the painter who's told to paint a picture of heaven and to paint a picture of hell. Two different pictures, one of heaven, one of hell. And he thought... How do I illustrate heaven and how do I illustrate hell? And he decided, I guess, to go beyond just like, all right, this one's on fire and that one's all with clouds or something. He decides to like really dive into the project. What's the difference between heaven and hell? He's like, I got it. So, begins to paint. And in the picture of hell, the painting of hell, he paints this beautiful place, just glorious, splendorous place with a large table, big banqueting table, full of all kinds of delicious, healthy, vegan food. <laughs> it's the same one in heaven, don't worry. So, and put people all around it, probably not the picture of hell that we also see, but the people sitting around the table were just looking at the food and they were just miserable, grumpy, awful. Like, okay. Now, paints a picture of heaven. Beautiful environment, long, luscious table full of this bountiful harvest of healthy, happy, good food. And around it, he put people, and they were all healthy, happy people. So what made the difference? Now, the key is, in both of these paintings, he gave all the people the same physical disability. None of them had operating elbows. 
Think about it. Your shoulders work, right? Your fingers work. Your wrist works. they couldn't figure out how to eat. But in heaven, with the same disability, only shoulders, only fingers, only wrists, you know, they didn't skip a beat. <laughs> right? And while you're going this way, somebody else is putting... <laughs> Having the fat and happy time of their lives. Right? Just good times, happy in heaven. And of course the punchline is, in heaven we don't need elbows. <laughs> no. That's of course not the punchline, right? But in heaven it never occurred to them to seek after, their first impulse wasn't to take for themselves. The first impulse was to give to others and they didn't skip a beat. They went from this world to the next seamlessly. But of course as we saw before, if Satan with his selfish character were allowed into heaven, where heaven just gives for others, and all he does is think about himself, the, the phrase that Ms. White used, it would be to him, supreme torture. Heaven would be hell for someone with a character of selfishness. In heavenly places, and we're going to come over to you. In heavenly places, page 233. In heaven, none will think of self, nor seek their own pleasure. Now, is that to say that heaven will be unhappy? No. It's like in our illustration, does that mean that everyone will go hungry? To see our mentality? If I don't seek my own pleasure, then I won't be happy. Slow down. Well, let's get a new kind of happy. Let's get happy in serving others, and they're going to get happy serving us. If you notice in the law of God, there's no do for yourself. It's all about your obligation to God and your obligation to other people. Where's the obligation for yourself to be taken care of in God's law? It's not. That's on the other guy to respect your boundaries and take care, right? In heaven, none will think of self, nor will, nor will seek their own pleasure, but all from pure, genuine love will seek the happiness of the heavenly beings around them. And here's the simple premise. If we wish to enjoy heavenly society in the earth made new, we must be governed by heavenly principles here. If we're ever going to be happy there, we need to learn to be happy in a heavenly environment even now. And with that segue, Brother Don, I wanted, you wanted to come and share for a few minutes, I want to give you this time. Help these people develop a Christ-like character. Can you get them to heaven, please? <laughs> Thanks. How many think that was great? One, to understand heaven. You need to understand heaven now. You know, I think that's a summary of the God-given gift to the Adventist Church of comprehensive medical missionary work. We've been given a gift to know how to practically help other people. And when we do that, we end up helping ourselves. We're told by the Spirit of Prophecy, if we help other people, angels actually help us. And I run a little school called the Health Program that actually does that. Here's the unique thing we do. For four months, for four months, we focus on helping people get healthy in the program itself. Every morning we go out and run three to five miles. At first we walk because everybody can't do that. Once that happens, then we start helping other people. The church members come alive. The church comes alive. We start helping our students learn how to cook and then cook for other people. They come alive. The people they cook for comes alive. We go out and do depression recovery seminars. We go out and do CHIP programs. We go out and do eight weeks to wellness programs, and guess what happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens. People get so interested because they've never, you know, one guy said, he looked me up on Google. How many of you have ever had someone look you up on Google? Drove to my house, found me at my house. I was in the front yard. He said, can I talk to you a minute? I said, sure. <laughs> what would you like? And he says, you know, 
I am so blessed by what's happening with your students who were unselfishly serving in his community for four months. I've never seen something like that. I want to know how to join your church. Amen. <laughs> that happened three times in the last month. You know what I learned? Unselfish service to others is so heavenly. People say, I want to be a part of that. Those same people are now signing up to help other people the way that they've been helped. So the key to victory over appetite and sin and all those things maybe is as simple as saying, I see what you've done for me, God. Now I want to practically know how to do something for others. So if you come by my booth, I'll give you a free book. It's one of Cameron DeVager's favorite books. I don't know if he mentioned it. It's called De Sozo. He actually had his elders study it in his church. And it's a practical way to put into practice what he's been talking about in terms of unselfish service. I'll give you a free copy of that and tell you more about the school. God bless you. And I don't know if you have something final you want to say. Did you want to say something final? Well, for the first time all day, we've had a few extra minutes. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> would you like to, uh, should we do a couple question answer things? Is that all right? Are, have all the questions been answered? Are we all done? Let's go. I mean, if we want to leave early, we can. But if there's a question, okay, go ahead. And I'm not saying I'll have the answer. I'm just going to make up some stuff. But go ahead. <laughs> when the people are raised, I'm doing this for recording. When the people are raised, what? And we have new bodies. And we have new bodies. Say it again now. Even the people that aren't going to heaven, will they have perfect bodies? Even the people who, are they going to be raised at the end of the millennium with a perfect body only to have that body destroyed? I would encourage you to read those last chapters of the Great Controversy where she talks about this. I know that their thoughts of their mind continue the current of their thoughts exactly where they left off. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't, I'm going to just guess I don't believe that they do rise. Somebody might have the answer. Is that, are you raising with an answer to that or another question? Uh, Brother Walleen, I think that I'm right about, I'm, I'm not sure that they raise with bodies incorruptible because that's for the redeemed, right? They're still subject to death and have all this, but they're going to be healthy enough to lead the charge, but not to have eternal life beyond that. Does that make sense? Yeah, old bodies, but like, you know, not destroyed, but put together enough to live for this experience. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's best I got. Okay, there was another question. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. But what about the thief on the cross? Or like, what if I die right now? My character's not perfect. Okay. Now, let me, let, me, let me throw this at you. First of all, I love the fact that we get to review the judgment, but we don't actually get to do the judgment. Okay? So, in my mind, Christ is the judge right now, and that's what we understand the heavenly sanctuary process is all about. Right? And there are several. I could use that, and I could, I could add to that. What about babies? What about the people who've never heard the name of Christ? What about, and Ms. White talks about slaves who never had an opportunity to know anything. I mean, she uses some pretty stark language about this. Apparently, there are three options when it comes to eternal life, okay? Either you're going to be destroyed by the fire, either or you're going to live for eternal life, or you will be as though you never were, okay? I'm not the judge of who falls into that category, and I praise the Lord that that's not my job. I also praise the Lord that we have a thousand years during the millennium to review why God has delineated this one's for the barn, this one's for a burn, this one's what, what isn't even at all. He's going to make that clear. I don't have an answer for that right now. I can take a guess, but I don't want to jump off the bridge into speculation. Okay? But those apparently are the three options. You either will be destroyed by the second death, or you will live for eternal life, or you will be as though you never were. Don't know. And I don't know if that gives you any more peace about it, or you're like, now I have a third option to be afraid. I don't know. Um, but that's, the, that's what I've got to offer on that one. Okay. Yes, ma'am. The phrase just simply says, as though they never were. And I don't know, I don't want to speculate beyond exactly what that entails, but I would imagine from my speculation, from my guessing about that, that would be just simply, you will not be again. You will not be raised. You will not have a. You will not have a conscience to have to be judged against. It just won't be. You just won't be. Yes, guy. All right. We have a minute or two left. Is there anybody else? Oh yes, yes, sir. I'm assuming you believe in Ellen White. I believe in her as a person and an authoritative prophet. Yes, yes. What convinced you that she was? 
what convinced me, oh, read. I'm, and I'm not trying to be dismissive at all, but to me, you, you read, you study the scripture and you harmonize. One of the things that's powerful to me is that any theological thing, any theme that you can discuss, any tough question you could chip away at, right? You're chipping through this big, sloggy research and you get all the pieces right and there's this beautiful tunnel of truth. And at the end of it, that very last pickaxe you throw in there, oh, and you see the light at the end of the tunnel, there she is in a rocking chair. Just like, where you been? Right? Now, I don't think that we should just jump to Ellen White without studying scripture. Of course not, of course not. But I believe the same Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets of old have inspired the prophet in this last day and that the two harmonize beautifully. And so it's a clarification, elucidation of those same biblical truths that had already been said in scripture. So study scripture, but there is a beautiful harmonious parallel role in the spirit of prophecy. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Do we have anything in the Bible or Spirit of Prophecy that talks about the Lord creating more intelligent creatures after this? Uh, as far as I know, no. But I don't want to speak authoritatively, but I believe that that's not the case. It would, I, from my human rationale, it would be difficult for me to see how someone could be brought into existence after the whole thing. If the whole point of the great controversy is to have every living, sentient person see the end from the beginning and then start all over again. You know, I would have a difficult time, but... With, with the things that are impossible with man or possible with God, I don't know how he could do it, but I trust him in that one for sure, for sure. Any other question before we wrap this up? Of course, we're going to come back. Oh, yes, one more. I would just say to, to get in your little app, your little you know, CD-ROM, and type in the phrase, as though they never were, or some combination of those. I can't give you an off the top of my head, but I know that phrase is used on occasion. Yeah. All right. If there are no other questions, I'm sorry? What? Early writings. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can we just bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed? All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time that we spent together. Lord, keep us safe. Keep us protected, not just physically, but Lord, spiritually. Help us to be faithful to you as you are eternally faithful to us. Help us represent you in this world and hasten your soon coming, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.